This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm Catherine Cullen, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Friday, December 22nd. On the pod today, the United Nations Security Council calls for more humanitarian aid into Gaza. Will the watered-down resolution have any impact in the Israel-Hamas war? Plus, 2023 marks Pierre Polyev's first full year as opposition leader. With Conservatives leading the polls, the power panel debates what a Polyev government could mean for Canadians. And a British Columbia MP travels 4,500 kilometres home by train to make a statement. We'll speak to Taylor Bacharach about his push to change passenger rail. Hello, this is Power and Politics. I'm Catherine Cullen in Ottawa. After days of diplomatic wrangling, the United Nations Security Council calls for more humanitarian aid into Gaza, but stops short of demanding a ceasefire. A humanitarian ceasefire is the only way to begin to meet the desperate needs of people in Gaza and end their ongoing nightmare. It took hours of negotiations, lots of drafts and edits, but the resolution passed. Will the watered-down text have any impact in the Israel-Hamas war? Plus, 2023 marks Pierre Polyev's first full year as opposition leader. With Conservatives leading in the polls, what would a Polyev government look like? We've got some new hints from the Conservative leader. The power panel will dig into that. And... Bit of work, bit of relaxation, and then hopefully home by the 23rd. A British Columbia MP travels 4,500 kilometres home by train to make a statement. Taylor Bacharach tells us why it's about time passenger rail in Canada catches up with the rest of the world. We begin at the United Nations, where a vote on the Israel-Hamas war, three times delayed this week, finally reached the Security Council. It took many days and many, many long nights of negotiating to get this right. Today, this council made clear that addressing the humanitarian crisis in Gaza needs to remain at the forefront of our agenda. The resolution passed with 13 votes in favor. The U.S. and Russia abstained. The resolution calls for more aid into Gaza. The original text demanded a, quote, urgent suspension of hostilities, but that was stripped out. The CBC's Chris Reyes joins us from New York, near the U.N.'s headquarters. So, Chris, what else can you tell us about what did and did not make the cut in this resolution? Well, Catherine, first and foremost, the resolution demands that humanitarian aid be scaled up in Gaza, delivered directly to the Palestinian civilian population using all available routes. So that means an expansion of just uh, the Rafah crossing. It means full implementation of the Karem Shalom uh, crossing that was recently announced. And then, Catherine, here's some UN speak for you. It calls for the cessation of conditions for a sustainable cessation of hostilities. And and so that wording uh, was changed from something that was stronger, calling for the end of uh, fighting altogether. And and some member states said that this balanced their support for Israel's right to self-defense. It also calls for the release release of all hostages. Uh, It requests the Secretary General appoint a special coordinator uh, that would monitor all of the humanitarian aid that would come into Gaza as a result of this resolution. Invited to the briefing, the Israeli and Palestinian ambassadors. Have a listen to their reaction after the resolution passed. This resolution is a step in the right direction. It must be implemented and must be accompanied by massive pressure 
for an immediate ceasefire. I repeat, immediate ceasefire. Any enhancement of UN aid monitoring cannot be done at the expense of Israel's security inspections. Israel not only has a right but an obligation to guarantee its security. This is why our mission to eliminate Hamas's capabilities has not changed. And this is why security inspections of aid will not change. Now, Catherine, Security Council resolutions are technically legally binding, meaning that U.N. member states must adopt them. Israel is a U.N. member state. That said, no one can force Israel to do anything. The Israeli ambassador has uh, said repeatedly at, at the council that Hamas doesn't pay attention to any of these resolutions. But I think what you can take away uh, with the passing of this resolution and why some are calling it a significant step is at the very least, it's a strong statement from some of the most powerful member states of the United Nations uh, agreeing that the humanitarian crisis in Gaza is dire and that they have to come together uh, to address it. Uh, and yet we know it took a long time to get to this point, so much back and forth. What else can you tell us about the challenges of getting to this moment? That's right. It was a full week of delays. The vote was supposed to happen on Tuesday, delayed to Wednesday, Thursday, and then Friday. Uh, we were told by the U.S. ambassador that it was 24-7, behind-the-scenes intense negotiations. Early December, the U.S. used its veto uh, when the council uh, tabled a resolution calling for a humanitarian ceasefire. The UAE, uh, which tabled this resolution, wanted to avoid that, and so worked diligently uh, with the U.S. delegation to ensure that the U.S. wouldn't use its veto power. What we heard from Linda Thomas-Greenfield is that this resolution is a step in, in the right direction, uh, but there's a reason why, why they still chose to abstain. Have a listen to what she said. While we are encouraged that the Council spoke out on this humanitarian crisis, we're deeply disappointed, appalled actually, that once again the Council was not able to condemn Hamas's horrific terrorist attack on October 7th. And I can't understand why, why some council members are standing in the way and why they refuse to condemn these evils unequivocally. And we should explain Russia's abstention as well. The Russian ambassador said that this resolution didn't go far enough. They wanted uh, for the resolution to call for a ceasefire. But I think the sense that you got from both countries is at this point in the conflict, uh, they couldn't keep using their veto power. Uh, just as an example, when the U.S. vetoed that resolution early in December, immediately after there were protests outside of the United Nations, outside of uh, their, their uh, office here in New York. And so negotiations will continue now that this resolution has passed. I think the sense that we're getting is that some member states will continue to pu push for that ceasefire, while other member states, the U.S. included, will continue to push for the council to condemn Hamas. Okay. Thank you so much for this. Thank CBC's, you. CBC's Chris Reyes in New York. In Gaza, the Hamas-run health ministry is reporting at least 20,000 Palestinians killed, most of them women and children. That's ever since October 7th, when Hamas gunmen killed more than 1,200 Israelis. The head of the UN says Gaza is facing famine if the fighting continues. Public order is at risk of breaking down. Humanitarian veterans who have served in war zones and disasters around the world, people who have seen everything, tell me they have seen nothing like what they see today in Gaza. For more on the humanitarian situation in Gaza, I'm joined by Dalia El-Akati. She's the head of humanitarian affairs at Save the Children Canada. 
Hello. I'd like to start with that UN resolution passed today. Do you think that it is going to make a difference in terms of the, de- of the delivery of aid? I certainly hope so. Uh, the delivery of aid has been so hindered over the past uh, almost 12 weeks now that it's really important that we, we get around to scaled delivery of aid. Um, we really do need that unfettered humanitarian access so that we're able to meet people uh, with with their very, well, help them meet their very basic needs, actually. Um, so hopefully it's, uh, you know, it'll help us move even closer in that direction. You talk about unfettered access. Um is that likely in light of this resolution? Well, one can be hopeful, but the reality is we've seen uh, really severe limitations on uh, humanitarian access, both for personnel and also for humanitarian assistance itself. So goods, including uh, medical supplies, water, food, fuel, uh, is essentially the essentials of life. Um, so I, I'm, I would say cautiously optimistic um, if, you know, if that but uh, I hope that that resolution does take us one step closer to that. The reality is there is a huge humanitarian need in Gaza. That need, actually, it's, it's bigger than huge. It's immense. Um, a majority of the population of Gaza, 80%, actually already depended on assistance to survive, to meet their basic needs prior to the 7th of October. Um, and to see that a majority of the population today is displaced, they are living in overcrowded um, shelters for those that are in the shelters, uh, but they are living in overcrowded situations with limited to no access to basics of life is really, really concerning and actually quite alarming, to be to be quite frank. Uh, and anything that takes us one step closer to that is... Um, is good, but ultimately what we need is an immediate ceasefire, and anything short of that will not work. I will get to the international calls for a ceasefire in a moment, but I just want to stay with the idea of what is happening right now and the perspective on this conflict. You gave us um, some figures, some perspective there. We heard, though, a moment ago from the uh, Secretary General of the UN talking about how many humanitarian workers have never seen anything like what is happening in Gaza right now. What are your own people telling you about how this compares to other conflicts? This is really unprecedented in, in a lot of ways. The scale of violence is just so immense and really quite concentrated too. Um, So from the scale of violence to the number of fatalities that we've seen, we're talking about almost 8,000 children in the space of around 12 weeks, Um, the 20,000 civilians, if not more at this point. This is just Wow, it just—it's incredible. Um, it is really immense. It's unprecedented. It's catastrophic. The fact that um, humanitarian assistance has been restricted from entering uh, for actually for several weeks uh, at the beginning of this latest escalation of the conflict. Uh, the fact that humanitarian assistance is still uh, not reaching people to scale. Um, even the discussion and the discussion that we'd seen around a ceasefire, whether you know whether countries should be calling for a ceasefire or not, including here in Canada, uh, these are all really quite unprecedented. We haven't seen this scale of violence against the civilian population in, and certainly not this concentrated in an incredibly long time. Humanitarian aid workers, uh, a majority of whom. Uh, the ones in Gaza of whom are Palestinian, are really unable to perform their duties. Uh, they themselves are affected by 
the latest escalation of the conflict. Uh, I can tell you about our own staff. A majority of them are displaced. Uh, last week, actually, we had um, one of our staff members, Seneh, with, uh, uh, was killed at home uh, by an Israeli airstrike with his family, so with his wife and his four children, uh, but also alongside 28 members of his extended family in that same airstrike. I'm, so sorry, I just want to say I'm... I'm incredibly sorry for, for your loss. I just wonder if you can help us understand. I mean, you are pointing to all of these different aspects of this challenge. How does your own group um, prioritize? As, as you deal with, uh, you know, the questions around famine, the spread of disease, um, other health is- issues, injuries, what do you put at the forefront in terms of what needs to happen right now, what you can hope to do for people inside Gaza? This, as you mentioned, this hasn't operated or functioned like a majority of the other humanitarian crises we've been in. And as as a humanitarian actor, Save the Children is in a lot, whether they're man-made, whether they're conflicts, whether they're natural disasters or climate-related. We operate in a really quite a variety of contexts, and what we're seeing in Gaza is quite unique. Um... And so usually we would prioritize. And so we have prioritized some of the assistance. We're prioritizing really the most immediate life-saving assistance. But the humanitarian space that we operate within is so depleted to the point that it's almost non-existent. Uh, So we ourselves as an organization suffer from the same fuel shortages. We also are um, restricted in the amount of supplies that we're able to either find in Gaza because we do know that stocks are incredibly depleted or we're able to bring in across border crossings. And so we had been dependent on the Rafah border crossing for the past few weeks to bring in some supplies. But as you know, that's just not enough. So what we have done is prioritized the most urgent. So we have been focused on bringing in water. We've been uh, focused on supporting with food, uh, assisting with the water sanitation situation in designated emergency shelters where we can, uh, making sure that we are able to bring in things like high thermal uh, blankets as well. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's how restricted our space is. Uh, generally speaking, in this kind of a conflict or this kind of a crisis, you would see a larger, more robust uh, response, including a presence of international personnel, including a scale-up of the teams on the ground as opposed to what we're seeing, which is a scale-down. Okay. Um, I, I do. We only... Re- really in every facet. Yeah. We, we only have about a minute left, and you mentioned ceasefire earlier, and in closing, I do want to ask you about that, because we have seen a shift in the past couple of weeks, a growing number of countries, including Canada, expressing for, support for a sustainable ceasefire. Do you think that those calls are having any effect? I think that those calls are mounting, and I think that in and of itself is having an effect. So we've seen that since uh, we've seen increasing calls for a ceasefire since Canada has joined the international call for a ceasefire, and that is, you know, certainly a step in the in the right direction. But we need to recognize it. We need it to become a reality. And anything short of an immediate ceasefire is really a failure to children that are most affected by this conflict. Okay, we're going to have to leave the conversation there. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. 
an important clarification about a moment on last night's show. In an introduction to the power panel, yesterday's guest host referred to the start of the current Israel-Hamas war, but missed a key line of context in the prepared introduction due to a teleprompter error. The intended scripting was, Israel declared war with Hamas following the deadly attacks of October 7th that killed nearly 1,200 people. We now have a date for the kickoff of the public inquiry into foreign interference in Canada's 2019 and 2021 federal elections. The Foreign Interference Commission says preliminary hearings will begin on January 29th in Ottawa and be held over five days. Those hearings are meant to help the commission establish how it can make as much information in the inquiry public as possible while still addressing national security concerns. The commission has also asked for the first report deadline of May 3rd to be delayed to allow for sufficient time for public hearings. Well, an MP from British Columbia has been making his way back home from the House of Commons since Sunday because instead of flying, Taylor Bacharach is taking the train. He started his journey in Toronto and is wrapping it up in Smithers, B.C. By the end of his journey, he will have traveled over 4,000 500 kilometers. The NDP transportation critic Taylor Bacharach joins me now. Let no one say you don't take your job seriously, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Good to be with you, Catherine. Yeah, so where, where are we reaching you right now? So I just hopped on the train in the tiny rural community of Dunster, which is in kind of east central uh, British Columbia in the Rockies. And I'm going to be riding at about 600 kilometers to my home in Smithers and spending the night in Prince George on the way and getting there tomorrow just in time for Christmas. Okay, so people are going to say you are doing exactly what every Canadian hopes to avoid over Christmas, which is spending like almost a week in transit. Why the heck uh, are you doing this, Taylor Backrack? Well, that's a that's a fair question. Uh, part of the part of the answer is that after over a hundred flights this year, I think Air Canada and I needed a break from each other, but. Mostly, I wanted to uh, experience the reality of with passengers along the way about the future of passenger rail, um, what Canada can do to catch up to the rest of the world, because frankly, our country lags far behind when it comes to passenger trains. Now, we are having a little bit of technical trouble. I think that's to be expected when you're doing a live interview uh, on a train. So we're going to try to power through here. Uh, you talk about wanting to talk to folks about uh, their reflections on and experiences of train travel. What have people been saying to you? People love the train. They want to see uh, better train travel in Canada. People I talk to are either of an age that they remember when uh, passenger trains were much better in our country, or they've traveled to other parts of the world that have uh, really high-performing passenger rail systems, and they want that for our country. So I think there's huge potential for Canada to invest in passenger rail, and there's some key changes that we need the federal government to make to make the experience today uh, that much better. Like what? Uh-oh. I think, unfortunately, Taylor Backrack, are you still there, or is this interview going to end in a moment of sus suspense? Oh. I'm worried. I'm worried this isn't going to work, Catherine. This is the reality. <laughs> and but this is the reality. Are we back? Yeah, I, I, I got you. Why don't, why don't you, I think, Taylor, we're going to have to wrap it up soon. So give us your best pitch here for what you'd like the government to do. I, you said investment. I know that means public spending. But what else uh, would you like to see from the government? Well, there's one key change. And last Thursday, I tabled my private member's bill to give passenger trains priority on shared tracks in Canada. If Via Rail was able to maintain 
I think we're just going to have to, unfortunately, uh, say goodbye. We got off to a good start there. Listen, we wish Taylor Bacharach, NDP transport critic, safe travels, uh, and hopefully we can catch up with him another time, find out a bit more about that trip. A town in northern Ontario is preparing to sell plots of land for about as much as you'd pay for a venti latte with extra flavor shots at your local coffee shop. Cochrane is right up near Timmins, about seven hours north of Ottawa. It's home to just over 5,000 people. But the mayor of the town wants to increase that number by offering land for as little as $10. Peter Politis is the mayor of Cochrane, Ontario. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Okay, so let's hear the pitch, Mayor Politis. Why should I give up a couple of Frappuccinos uh, in order to buy a plot of land in Cochrane? Yeah, of course, I like the valuation. Actually, Frappuccinos are highly valued today in society, <laughs> for sure. So uh, reality, the reality is there's no real pitch. There's a reality. There's a value proposition. And the value proposition is that we're in an era where housing has become a key element in, in the country, let alone the, the, the continent, quite frankly. And anyone owning a home or trying to own a home has found themselves in the most precarious times to try to do that. We have a lot of migration that's going to be taking place to the region as well, too, for a lot of different regions, reasons. Interestingly enough, also related to the electric vehicle market, where the minerals need to be extracted to provide the batteries for those vehicles and the employees uh, to operate those mines and so on and so forth are need to be um, moved into the region. They're going to be coming along with the natural attrition that's taking place as well, too. And in that, we're doing what any other progressive municipality or organization, organization would be doing. We're uh, proactively and aggressively uh, going after uh, selling the, the, the ability for people to move here and relocate to our community and recognize that all along the Highway 11 corridor here, there are beautiful communities, an amazing way of life, and one of the best backyards in the planet. So we'll give you a leg up on the finances to purchase a home. Uh, for the younger generation in our country, quite frankly, who are, uh, who are resolved to the fact that they'll never own a home and never realize the quintessential Canadian dream, will provide you the opportunity to own a home and uh, will also provide you the opportunity to raise your family in an amazing way of life in one of the best backyards on the planet. And uh, you'll have the opportunity to secure one of those high-paying natural resource jobs that are that are coming our way as well, too. So we think that's a pretty good value proposition. That's, that's quite a pitch. You, you talk about the fact that you're going after this aggressively, and it's not just that you are offering up these plots of land for $10,000 when they are valued at, um, sorry, for $10 when they're valued at tens of thousands of dollars. You're also offering a property tax rebate for the next five years. For folks who um, live in Cochrane right now, how do you explain to them why the city is willing to take that kind of financial hit? Why is it worth it? Yeah, that's a great question. And you've hit the nail right on the head in terms of what the social challenge is within any municipality, let alone a smaller municipality like ours that uh, has a lot of challenges to deal with at the end of the day. The reality is that what we're doing is we're taking properties that are sitting there doing nothing and we're converting them into properties that will be generating millions of dollars of revenues down the road in taxes. So we're following what uh, industry and retail has been doing forever. It's a loss leader. Uh, so for uh, properties that are gaining nothing at this point, we're going to put them in a position to actually generate more revenue, create more population density to pay for every kilometer of infrastructure that exists as well. And in the process of doing this, we're creating an opportunity for developers to find a value proposition here as well too and to see the need to invest in our community and when they invest in our community they're improving other parts of our community as well our community is not a desperate community looking for population growth we're simply a a uh, progressive community uh taking advantage of an opportunity a generational opportunity quite frankly to move people this way and we think we're coming up with a creative way to do that most of the community honestly uh, while there is anxiety and we're working our way through that anxiety 
realizes that housing and housing inventory is a really important aspect. It was a key issue in the election campaign and uh, realize that we need to do something different and progressive. I I would like to jump in here, Mayor, because you talk about that anxiety. And here's one concrete example on social media on the town's Facebook page. Somebody responded saying this will invite anyone to purchase. They're worried about who's going to come into their community. What do you say to that? Well, I, I say, you know, we're passionate about our way of life, as you can tell, and uh, and everybody's worried about, you know, what can or may go wrong. But at the end of the day, we have a very thought-out, comprehensive plan and approach. Not everybody will be able to purchase the properties. There's a qualifying, there's qualifying criteria that's being put together. There's an application process. Uh, they'll have to establish themselves as having the wherewithal to put a house up. The reality of this is it's all about housing inventory. So if you're going to build a home, we're going to provide you with the, the means to do that here in Cochrane. And there's going to be uh, comprehensive criteria around how uh, what that is to qualify for doing that. So it's not just anybody. It will be uh, a very carefully a carefully monitored process and uh, generating as much anxiety as we can. But doing this as responsibly as you can, because as you mentioned, when this is all said and done, generational opportunity now, we have to live with the result at the end of the day. So we're walking our way through this responsibly, learning from other municipalities, and I, when we think we have a pretty good approach uh, in, in taking in what we're doing at this point. I got to ask you, and I'm sure there are folks at home who've been sitting here during this interview going, what's with all the polar bears <laughs> in the picture behind you, in the visuals that we've been showing on the screen? Uh, this is a unique feature that your community has. Uh, why don't you explain to folks what's up with the polar bears? So we have the largest natural habitat for captive polar bears in the entire world in Cochrane, Ontario. That one is key. <laughs> key for sure. Yeah. So I mean, at the end of the day, if they're if they're orphaned or if they're captive, mm-hmm. uh, we have a facility for them. The only facility dedicated to the care, solely dedicated to the care of polar bears in the world. An important species, obviously, in an era that we're going through when you think of climate change and everything associated with that. Uh, we are connected to the James Bay Coast. We are the last stop. We are the end of Young Street, Catherine, at the end of the day. So when you come to Cochrane, we have the same sign sitting here that you have at Nathan Phillips Square, where the Toronto sign that identifies Toronto. We're the end of Young Street. If you get on Young Street, you keep driving, it ends in Cochrane. But interestingly enough, Cochrane's just the 49th parallel. So we're not in the North Pole. We're simply on the Canada-U.S. border in, in Western Canada. So we have a great value proposition here, we think, for everybody to consider. And the polar bears are, are just an added benefit of one of the wonderfully unexpected things that we have in our community. Not in the North Pole, but still with polar bears. Uh, listen, Mayor Plytus, it was lovely to meet you. Uh, all the best to everybody in your community. and We wish you a happy holidays as well. Uh, thanks so much. Merry Christmas to everybody. Thanks. Merry Christmas to you. That was the Mayor of Cochrane, Ontario, Peter Politis. It's year-end interview time, and Conservative leader Pierre Polyev has been making the rounds. As today's Toronto Star's wrap of his 10 interviews points out, Polyev revealed quite a few things about his plans should he become Prime Minister. From tying immigration levels to housing availability to a foreign policy he calls the bring-it-home doctrine, the Friday Power Panel is here to dig through what we've learned. Nigan Sinclair is a columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press and a professor of Indigenous Studies at the University of Manitoba. The Globe and Mail's Laura Stone is in Toronto, and here with me in studio, Susan Delacorte is the national columnist for the Toronto Star. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on a Friday, right before the holidays. Uh, Susan, I want to start with you because this is your colleague, and we should say... New Deputy Bureau Chief in the Parliament Hill Bureau, uh, the fabulous Stephanie Levitz, she did this great piece in the Star looking at what we learned. What stood out to you the most? First, I should say she had that title before she agreed to listen to 10 (laughs) (laughs) interviews. Uh, 
she uh, she she's amazing. Mm-hmm. I don't know how she does it, but she she listened to them all. I. You know, the things that stood out for me, some of the fun stuff, of mm-hmm. course. I like those year-end interviews that have the fun bits in them. So I um, I like the pronunciation of his name. Polyevre, I Polyevre. believe. Polyevre. Uh, yes. Okay. But he says he's fine with Polyevre. Yeah. Um, the moose milk recipe, of course. Which is an, a Bailey's alternative, apparently. Yeah. Um, but, um, some, but some serious policy stuff in here, too. Exactly. Yeah, I'm not going <laughs> to... <laughs> Start reading the recipe on air. No. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I was intrigued with the immigration stuff, the okay. bring it home. Mm-hmm. Um, that sounds kind of um, Canada first, you know, or I'm sure what the liberals are going to turn it into is make Canada great again, mm. something like that. Well, we already hear the prime minister talking about this idea of MAGA conservatives. That's, that's right. Said yeah, yeah. I, uh, th- we, uh, I think we'll get to his interviews too, but mm-hmm. I, I was intrigued by what he said to Rosie Barton on that score. But... Um, the intriguing thing to me is that Polyev has not been speaking about foreign policy. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to get him speaking about it. And so kudos to the interviewers who, who actually dragged him out a bit on that, too. Mm-hmm. He actually had some interesting things to say about the Middle East, even. You know, that, um, that right now um, what's going on is um, not pro-Palestinian, it's pro-Hamas. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I yeah. Uh, I think he should do more of these interviews, say, with maybe the CBC or the Toronto Star. I will just say, I'm sure you <laughs> folks have been politely asking. Uh, the, the show I usually host, the house, asking a lot. And we, we look forward to the opportunity. Um, I do want to maybe outline a little bit, Susan, in terms of the bring it home doctrine and what we learned from um, the conversations that he had. He says, it means bringing home our money rather than giving it away in foreign aid to terrorists and dictatorships and international bureaucracies. It means defending our energy sector on the world stage. Um, And at one point talks about how the money uh, could go to the military, Canadian military instead. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, I want to see him explain exactly Mm -hmm. how that works, too, because it's not like the government, any government has a policy of giving money to dictators. So... Uh, I think he's talking about the the oil, uh, mm-hmm. about um, about capitalizing more on the fact that we should be uh, providing Europe with its oil needs rather than Russia, uh, etc. But he's been saying that for a while. I, I, I again, I'm I'm intrigued to see the details of this. So. That when we, the star gets its interview, we'll ask him some more. Okay, Nigan, uh, I want to go over to you and either things that stood out for you or or questions that some of this might have inspired for you. Yeah, uh, well, first of all, the, the good. I mean, uh, these interviews are meant to humanize. They're meant to uh, to the same things that he's been trying to do, which is image makeover over the past six to eight months, taking off the glasses, showing up in a much more softer side, stopping using words like Canada's broken. So, I mean, we saw more of that in the Izzy's interviews, but uh, there was some intriguing little nuggets here and there. I mean, he is talking about trying to make uh, Canada a leader on the energy sector, uh, saying things like there's 60 to 100 million barrels of oil that's going to be needed, and do we want that in dirty Saudi Arabia versus clean Canada, and using those kinds of... Uh, I'm scared to say whistleblower terms, but I mean, Polyev, if anything, is really very adept. And even the prime minister recognized this in his year in interviews, is taking a tiny thing that Canadians are concerned about or have a kind of wondering about and then making it a big stoplight issue that people sort of pick upon, really stick on. And then he makes usually fun phrases or rhymes out of it. Uh, that's something that he's very good at. And one thing that he is uh, really good at is taking these kinds of moments with the media 
and then being able to create these tiny clips out of it. I mean, we all know about the apple biting clip that now has 700,000 views on YouTube. Uh, he's very adept at that. And I don't think it's any coincidence that he visited with the medias that's very friendly to him. And, and, and then immediately today released a video about defunding the CBC and saving a billion dollars as a result. So he's able to get pick up on those tiny things very quickly and be able to move very quickly. But I think the one thing that I thought was very interesting out of the entire interview was his focus on parental rights. I mean, he is right that Blaine Higgs in New Brunswick uh, was first criticized for parental rights, but now he's seeing some movement. Blaine Higgs is actually campaigning on that. So I think he's seeing that there is kind of a movement within the country to pick up on certain conservative issues, and he's really harping and focusing mm -hmm. on that and saying, hey, I've supported that too. Yeah, and, and we should say the parental rights, this is in regards to uh, the pronouns that students use in the classroom. We know New Brunswick and Saskatchewan uh, have passed new policies on that. I did think it was interesting. As far as I can tell, Mr. Polyev wasn't asked where he stands on um, the resolution his party passed in the fall, which was banning surgery um, for, for and, and medical procedures for, for trans kids at the time. He wouldn't say where he stands. He's had some time to think about it. Will we hear an answer to that? Um, Laura, I was also particularly interested in the question of immigration levels. Um, True North's Andrew Lawton really, he tried uh, to get a straight answer from Mr. Polyev about whether or not the liberal targets were, in Mr. Polyev's view, too high. And Mr. Polyev was quite clear that he wasn't going to specifically answer that question, but he did give a sort of bigger picture look at how he's viewing this issue, saying tight housing, he tie it to the number of um, doctors and nurses, job availability. What did you make of that? I think it was really interesting that that came out at the same time that the Prime Minister this week was asked about immigration levels at a housing announcement. And he talked about, you know, needing to kind of rein in um, students. He talked about asylum seekers and problems with people crossing, which I think was, uh, you know, very different than, than the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau we may have heard four or five years ago. He talked about temporary foreign workers. So I think that there's, I think that's a sign, I guess, that both of the Liberals and the Conservatives are, are seeing that this issue of immigration, while approaching it, uh, you know, um, maybe the Liberals are taking more of a softer approach to this, but I think they're seeing probably concerns from the electorate about housing and immigration and how that's tied. Mr. Polyev um, was not forthcoming when asked what his targets would be. As you mentioned, Andrew Lawton from True North did try to pin him down on that. I think there was a lot of these interviews which were given to uh, primarily conservative-leading um, media or, you know, quote-unquote friendly media, not, you know, those mainstream media outlets that Pierre Polyev has clashed with throughout the year. There was a lot of wait-to-see-my-platform. And, you know, mm. in 2025, we'll talk about the platform. So I think he's he's approaching this uh, from the stance of a front-runner. Obviously, the polls have put Pierre Polyev uh, ahead of the Liberals throughout the year. He's talking to people who maybe agree with him or see his viewpoint who maybe don't challenge him in the same way that some of the other outlets would. And I'm not saying that some of the interviewers uh, didn't do a good job, but but clearly he's not talking to the more mainstream outlets that that three of us represent. Um, and so he, you know, he he's doing this as, you know, maybe a way to, to avoid some accountability and some of those difficult questions to try to pin him down. I, I will say, and I don't want to spend too much time sort of uh, having the media talk about the media, but he did talk to the Toronto Sun and private radio stations, which many of whom might consider themselves 
mainstream media, but I think we want to keep the focus on totally. the, the, the policy uh, issues here. And Susan, I do want to pick up on that immigration issue mm. for one second, because I think it's really interesting to look at how um, this issue both works for and against um, both the Liberals and the Conservatives. Like Mr. Polyev, I mean, I, I watched him from the beginning of his leadership campaign. He has made, uh, he has taken great pains to speak very positively about immigration. He makes the point that his own wife came to Canada um, and, you know, talks about needing to get credentials faster for foreign trained doctors and nurses. Um, as there is this conversation that the Liberals are really pushing around him being MAGA-like, he has really gone to great lengths to not seem anti-immigration. And that is the huge distinction between the Canadian conservative movement and the American mm-hmm. one. That uh, uh, Donald Trump, that, you know... The liberals like to compare Polyev to Trump, but that I, I remember an interview that Stephen Harper gave mm-hmm. way back in the day when Jason Kenney was doing a great job at um, at recruiting cultural communities to the conservative cause and saying that he was proud of the fact that unlike other conservative movements around the world, they weren't anti-immigration, the mm-hmm. conservatives. So I think Polyev is very mindful of that. So watching him walk that balance uh, in these interviews saying and not fall into the anti-immigration thing. Is. I, I do want to ask you, Susan, and then I'll ask the rest of the panel quickly before we go. You mentioned the Prime Minister's year-end interview, and one of the interesting things that he said uh, in his conversation with the CBC was his suggestion that, like, well, Mr. Polyev can say wherever he wants. We have to make choices. Um, Mr. Polyev is the leader of the opposition <laughs> and not in, in government. Uh, it's, to me, a fascinating question how much an opposition party, and particularly one that is poised in the polls to take power, ought to say about what its plans are, what is reasonable to ask of them. Uh, Yeah, well, what what are your thoughts about it? Responsibly, they do have to. And I will say that, you know, I I covered uh, Justin Trudeau in the months leading up and years leading up to him becoming prime minister, and he did lay out. I went to a speech where he did Canada-U.S. policy. Mm -hmm. I think that Um, was there, too, back (laughs) in the day. (laughs) uh, The child tax credit, that was also unveiled. So I don't think that Pierre Polyev, you know, there are people who say he's just going to try to coast mm-hmm. into uh, into victory by saying nothing, kind of like Doug Ford did. I remember Doug Ford didn't, didn't put out a platform. But I also think they're very different politicians, <laughs> you know? Like Polyev, very different, yeah, yes. Yeah, a bit more of a wonk. And those Trudeau speeches, I will say, were a bit closer to election time, so the, yeah. the timing is key. Yeah. I, I think we've only got a couple minutes left, and I'd like to get a, na- a last word in from Nigan and uh, Laura. So, Nigan, I'll, I'll start with you. Um, whether you want to weigh in on that question of how much... Uh, a politician ought to reveal when they're not in power about their plans, or if you just want to talk about the questions you have. Yeah. yeah no. Well, the, this is this is the central core of when you saw today liberals coming out speaking about the year-end interviews that Polyev was giving. I mean, that's a bit of an anomaly to have a governing party talk about the opposition party's uh, year-end interviews. But that that alone, okay. uh, Polyev is a master at just saying just enough to say that he said something, but really to say nothing. I mean, what is his general issue around climate change? Uh, it's just we got to approve everything. And like, tax the tax, green that? technology. <laughs> Just approve, 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 yeah. and we got to turn everything yeah. green. And yeah. so, and whatever Trudeau does is terrible and is worse. And you know, like 
so you can say, oh, well, I did talk about this. Yeah. But you really didn't really say anything about this. And, um, of course, the number one issue that I always get into when I see this approve, approve, approve is really just a way of demonizing those who would then say, hey, we should consult. That's mm-hmm. Indigenous peoples. That's talking about First Nations rights. Uh, the one thing that, you know, is very interesting in his moves here on these speeches is the way that he appealed to the NDP voters. He he really mm-hmm. demonized Jack saying okay. it and saying that, hey, the union the unions are not happy with the NDP. Okay, I think we are right out of time here. I'm sorry, Laura. We'll just wish you happy holidays with your beautiful <laughs> no problem. Uh, stalking background there. Thank you so much to all the members of the Power Panel. Uh, lovely to have all of you on this almost holiday Friday. Negan Sinclair, Susan Delacourt, and Laura Stone. That's it for today. If you're looking for more podcasting political content, please check out CBC Radio's The House, the show I host normally for our year-end news quiz that's dropping on Saturday. And if you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. I'm Catherine Cullen. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.